Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations has been busy wrapping up a book due out January uh, 10th, and we're going to talk here about the disarrays among our international uh, relations. You were mentioning a get-together with the Young Turks, David Rockefeller, (laughs) Henry Kissinger, George Shultz. I I know what you think of our international relations. What do gentlemen of that vintage think of the zaniness of our American international relations? Well, I won't speak for them, but what I simply say is when I talk to people like them and others, there's real concern that things that we thought, Tom, that were given, that we could assume, they're not there anymore. We didn't think we were going to wake up in a country or in a world where people are going to question the basics of free trade, the basics of U.S.-NATO commitment, U.S. relationship with Japan and, and Korea, openness to immigration. So suddenly, almost like the Brexit vote in Britain, things that we kind of assumed are no longer. There's no givens anymore. If President Trump forms a cabinet and affects a policy like some of his statements, a lot of people, Nick Burns, we talked to at length yesterday about this uh, with his years of public service, feel there has to be a check and a balance. Can the legislature check and balance the idea that Crimea is part of Russia? Very hard, given our constitution and our tradition. The the, the executive branch has much more discretion and leeway when it comes to foreign policy than it does when it comes to domestic policy. Much more has to work through and with Congress. So the president of the United States could say and do things that really could unnerve allies, and that could lead to a world if basically allies don't believe they can count on the United States. One or two things happen. Either they essentially come to terms with their powerful neighbors, China or Russia, a version of appeasement, or they basically say, we're going to do it ourselves. And that would move to a world in which alliances unravel and countries proliferate. And the Japans, the Koreas, and others start rethinking about whether, for example, they need to have Mm -hmm. nuclear weapons themselves. This is a much more dangerous world. One of the great calls of the last 10 years, and I guess I could wrap it around Ken Rogoff, who assists you at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Carmen Reinhardt, but many others as well. Lagarde has been very good on this, is this idea of global growth isn't there. Is that the main reason for our international relations tensions and that there's just a dampening of global growth? Uh, It's a big part of it. You're seeing it around the the world. You no longer have a rising tide and people are feeling pressure. You no longer have quite the same amount of upward mobility, so there's a greater fixation on inequality. We were talking about it before. There's also the issue of, of technology coming, innovation and job displacement, job el- elimination. So it's not simply the lack of growth, but it's the uncertainty about the future because jobs are disappearing and they're not coming back. Do you just assume, and does your team at CFR assume TPP is dead in the Atlantic Agreement as well? That is strong. It's on life support. It ain't going anywhere now. The real question, I think, if Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, can you revive it? My view of that is maybe, and what I would recommend is not that you renegotiate it. That would be impossible. But you could have a deal, a side deal between Congress and the president, which would set out certain understandings. I think that would be the way to go after the Let me be clear here. Not to renegotiate it, but start over from scratch? No, neither. Neither. You'd keep the agreement as is, but then there would be certain associated understandings. 
between the president and the Congress, for example, what to do if you saw a country con consciously uh, manipulating its currency. What, what sort of reactions in the United States. So this would basically give America, you also have trade adjustment assistance, worker aid. You basically have a bunch of arrangements or understandings between the White House and the Congress that would give people political yeah. cover to vote for TPP. I'm writing down, folks, I love this phrase, associated understandings. I think that's how you talk to college-age children in August. <laughs> you have associated, no. you have associated but, understandings. But this reflects my past. I used to work on U.S.-Soviet arms control agreements. Right. And what Congress often required before it would vote for an agreement mm. is the executive branch would have to make certain commitments, for example, about missile or other types of nuclear mm. modernization, what to do if you found the Soviets in noncompliance. And that gave Congress the confidence, or if you want to be more cynical, <clears throat> the political cover right. to vote for a controversial agreement. We are going to need to come up with a similar package to give people the political cover they need to vote for TPP. The other current event theme, we talked to Admiral Stravitas about this Fletcher School, and of course he was shortlisted as a VP candidate for Secretary Clinton. And it's a modest uproar, but I think with your perspective and your public service, it fits. Should generals speak at political conventions? Mr. Dempsey was like, well, I don't think so. Mr. Allen was forceful and made a big impact. Look, as long as they're retired generals, uh, why yeah. not? They're citizens. A guy named Eisenhower did it, right? They have uh, That First Amendment applies to people who used to wear the uniform, so why not? Okay. Let's move on to China and Japan in Asia. It's something that I think has been off the surveillance radar recently. Is China alone in our international relations world now? Are they a, a lone actor or agent, or do they have allies? Well, they have they have allies, and they have a lot of countries that are taking them into into account. They've got they're they're a player. They've been quite effective at regional economic. Initiatives, you know, whether it's in Central Asia, whether it's in, in East Asia. So China doesn't have formal alliances, but but China's a player, and they have all sorts of relationships economically, politically, to some extent militarily. Uh, so they're, they're not alone. Uh, one other theme, I guess, of current events, and I guess it goes to the Olympics in Rio as well. You have at CFR some of the best medical yeah. politics and medical study yes. I've ever read. She's exceptional. And yeah, Lori us, Garrett. Lori Garrett. Give us Lori Garrett's update on the Zika virus. Well, yeah, in the last, what, 24, 48 hours, we had the news about that we now have homegrown, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Zika, you now have travel advisories for parts of Florida, something that you and I are not familiar with. No, look, more broadly, these Olympics in Brazil are a disaster. You've got security <clears throat> issues. You've got infrastructure issues, the facilities aren't there, the plumbing isn't working, and then you've got this disease overlay, all by the way at a time, the Brazilian political system is in acute crisis. Uh, you could not have imagined or developed a, right. a worse combination of, of events. The Olympics were meant to showcase a country. This is whatever the opposite of showcase is, this is it. What is Lori Garrett's prescription for Washington to deal with something that is here and now? It's not oh. Ebola, with great respect for the courage it took to, to quench that virus. No, but we've been slow off the mark. The fact that we haven't <clears throat> made certain outlays and investments at dealing mm -hmm. with Zika in terms of figuring out not just to eradicate, you know, to deal with mosquitoes, but to come up with ways right. of, of helping people who come down with it. We've been slow to invest the money. This is, this is another example where we just have our priorities wrong and political dysfunction has gotten right. in the way. Governments have obligations. One of the reasons, connecting this conversation, right. one of the reasons we're seeing the hostility we're seeing towards 
the status quo towards government, is when government doesn't perform, and this is an example of government not performing, right. people get understandably angry. This is where populism comes from. How should we adapt and adjust, and, and we'll come back with Michael McKee and look at Europe and, and even continue the domestic discussion. I, I'm fascinated by, and you're apolitical at CFR, I understand that, the Republican foreign policy elite is essentially led the charge away from Mr. Trump. <clears throat> How do you observe that? What is the prism you see of people just saying this is intolerable, we can't do this, and they're overtly going to support Secretary Clinton? Will others follow? Uh, the short answer is yes. You're beginning to see it on the op-ed pages. You're seeing it in various pronouncements. So at a minimum, you're seeing the Republican foreign policy lead distance itself essentially as far as it can. Right. And probably privately voting for Hillary Clinton. And what you're beginning to see, though, is more and more people in print or in voice saying that they cannot support Donald Trump. And the reason is Hillary Clinton, to use a, a sports analogy, my apologies, she is squarely in the mainstream. She's within the 40-yard lines on the football <clears throat> field. Right. Donald Trump's in the end zone. So for the Republican foreign policy establishment, far safer to work with a Hillary Clinton than it is with a Donald Trump. Michael McKee, populism is everywhere. I mean, I, 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 you have to almost like think what nation is populism not there? That would be a good topic for our guest. Uh, the world is mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. It's, I like it's, that. You know, they're all well, going to the windows. And, well and throw, yeah, if you're old enough to have seen the movie. But um, Richard Haas is, is with us for the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm curious. We, we, we go through this cyclically. We have these bouts of populism. Most recently, I guess you would put Ross Perot in that category in the early 90s. And then it seems to burn itself out for a while. Do you see that? happening again this time, or is there some sort of quantitative difference? I mean, you go back to the 1800s, and you had William Jennings Bryan nominated three times, so you got a 12-year cycle there. But uh, other times, it doesn't seem to last quite as long. In some ways, populism tends to burn out almost because of its own extremism, its own dynamics, its own excess. What worries me this time, Mike, is that it could last, despite the, shall we say, imperfections of some of its uh, messengers, uh, and that's because we're probably facing a future of prolonged low growth, and we're probably facing a future of uh, technological innovation and job displacement and, uh, and elimination, demographic pressures. Uh, so if you add all this up and potentially dysfunctional politics, which makes it hard to do things, the, the breeding grounds of, of populism and also its cousin nationalism, it seems to me, could be longer than historically has, has been the norm. Well, are you saying within that that it's not possible for somebody to come up with solutions or the people we have out there will not come up with solutions? It's possible to come up with solutions. The problem is getting solutions, or solutions is a big word, but it's possible to come up with things that would help. It's just getting them through the, the political system. So in the United States right now, if you gave me a few minutes and some other people, we could probably come up with a pretty good list of things that, that might be done in terms of dealing with debt, dealing with infrastructure, dealing with immigration, uh, dealing with certain uh, political practices. The problem is the, the very forces that have made the political system the way they are, the special interests and so forth, the kinds of things that Mansur Olson was writing about years ago, those are the same political forces that make it difficult to introduce reform. Reform always advantages some and disadvantages others. So whether your issue is gun control or, or debt, groups like the NRA or the AARP in this country are going are gonna to fight you. So the ideas out there, I don't think it's, it's a paucity of ideas. I think it's simply limited political well, prospects. How did we get things through, when, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, became 
a populist leader and uh, passed a, a lot of legislation that addressed many of the concerns that had arisen. How did that happen then? Uh, he, he certainly had to go up against the money trust as he— Sure, uh, but it was a different society than not just much smaller population, but uh, less sclerosis— in the political system, the special interests were much less developed. And look at some of the realities now of, of, of American politics, the way we fund our politics. We've gone from broadcasting to narrowcasting. Political parties have been disintermediated. All of these things work against coalitions. They work against uh, consensus building. I, I, I actually do think there are qualitative changes that make it more difficult to for the political system to work uh, as intended. Just as an aside, it's one of the reasons you saw in Britain, you see in California, so if you see a greater use of referenda. It's not a good idea. It's actually a bad idea, but it's an end run around dysfunctional political processes. Let me drag into this Fareed Zakaria, who uh, an August conservative commentator went after this weekend. It was a horrific language on Twitter. Dr. Zakaria uh, has written about our liberal education. He's also written about hub-and-spoke foreign policy. Give us an update on America's hub-and-spoke strategy. Is that a valid, is that where we are right now, where we are the hub and there are many spokes in our foreign policy? Yeah, the short answer is, is yes, there's no other hub out there. The alternative to an American hub in the world is a world without a hub, and that is a world that I think is increasingly off the, the rails. To use an economics yeah. or finance metaphor, there's no invisible hand in the geopolitical marketplace. So without the United States exerting a, a visible hand, I think the world is uh, in trouble. But we can't do it alone. And that's where the hubs, uh, that's where the spokes come in. And whether it's NATO in Europe or Japan, Korea, Australia and others in, in Asia, or we work through institutions uh, in the economic or political sp space or, or around the world, or we fashion coalitions of the willing, that that is how we do it. It's various forms of uh, American-led multilateralism. That is a process that's actually worked for three-quarters of a century. And what worries me is people seem to underestimate the benefits and to seem yeah. to underestimate the costs of moving away from it. There's a kind yeah. of cavalierness, Tom, that I think is quite worrisome. The cavalier barely captures the moment. This has been extremely valuable. Richard Haas is with the Council on Foreign Relations. Wages and salaries component of personal income is up three-tenths, so it's better than yeah. the overall number. Um, disposable income, though, only up two-tenths. And I know you've been following the savings rate. It falls to 5.3%. That helped with some of the spending since incomes were not up as high. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I'm going to say not that much of a move, little move around here, but... Uh, never, no, there it is. It's our new it modern economy. Yeah, well, there are more numbers coming out this week that uh, people are going to care about. Diane yes. Swank being one of them. She's, uh, of course, the founder of DS and Associates out in Chicago. She joins us now. Uh, Diane, um, this uh, falls a little bit under the category of old news since it was June, but we do get uh, jobs coming up and the, the earnings component of that. And everybody will be watching to see if tight labor markets are indeed generating additional income for Americans. Well, certainly will. And um, I'm not the data point. The job data is the data point. But um, you did say I was the data point. Oh, I my, thought I but... meant you were the person watching the data point. <laughs> yes. 
Um, but yes, we're looking at 175,000 for the month of July. And on the average hourly earnings component, it's a bit of a stretch this month, depending on what the revisions are. We need to see at least 0.3% gains to hold on to that 2.6% year over year in average hourly earnings. And I'm expecting the unemployment rate to hold at 4.9% for the right reasons. And that's that we're going to see participation in the labor force continue to improve or at least hold at a higher level after we saw that backtrack in the second quarter. That's really important because it really gets to the issue of how much are we re-engaging workers that have been sidelined by the Great great, um, Recession and the lackluster recovery that followed. One of the interesting areas that we've been watching very closely, and this gets into the tensions we're seeing in our electoral cycle right now, and that is... um, Women in the labor force are picking up their participation, particularly among the 24, 25 to 34-year-olds. They're doing better, and they stayed in school longer, and um, those um, we now know that you have a higher chance of getting a college degree as a woman than a man now. That's a complete flip-flop from much of history um, in the United States, and that is helping them to get reengaged and get entry-level jobs. We also are seeing, and something we're going to watch really closely, is we've seen a real uptick since gas prices have fallen over the last couple of years, um, we've seen an uptick in spending on daycare which is further signs that the labor market may be healing where two-income households could once only afford one income, whether it be the man or the woman, um, or man and man or woman and woman, however we may cut it, but two-income households were unable to get that daycare and afford to get a job when um, we were generating only low-wage jobs. We seem to be seeing some kind of shift there, and that's something we're watching really closely. That's something you know something about now, Tom, is uh, getting the, the daycare help. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> it's costly, right? <laughs> yeah. I, Diane, I'm, I've, been, I've been watching a lot of Cubs baseball the last couple of days. Wrigley Field is gorgeous. That's where my head is. Wrigley Field is just, just truly. A ball got lost in the ivy last night. For those of you worldwide, it's the only park in the world with trees on the walls. So they hit yeah, the ball. Ivy, but yeah. <laughs> and the ball goes in, and the fielder waves his arms, and everybody has to stop running. Which is, I thought that was unique, uh, Diane. Speaking of that, Diane, you know, the, the, the concept of flyover. I was talking to Richard Haas about this this morning. You got the elites on the East Coast, the elites on the West Coast, and there's this concept of flyover. Do you buy that? You know, it's been out there for a while, and it is, you know, having living in the second city. Chicago. Um, We certainly have had to deal with it over the years, and I do think there is some of this idea of sort of bubbles on two coasts. That said, I think there's a lot, you know, there's just a difference across the country. Income inequalities are something that rural versus non-rural areas, urban versus non-urban areas, you know, you see it in the Chicago metropolitan area within the city versus outside of the city, pockets within the city, extremely poor pockets within the city, you know, where housing prices have far exceeded their previous high and wealth is accumulating. So it really, although, yes, it's an interesting way to simplify the income inequality concept and the idea that we live in bubbles and we don't really understand the breadth of what we're dealing with. Come on, we've been talking about income inequality since, um, well, for a while, actually, since the 1980s, as I recall it. That's my career. And it got it got worse in the 1990s, and then we got a bit of a reprieve because there really was a sense when unemployment fell so low that 
the tide came in for almost everyone, even though the income inequalities were there. You at least had a chance of getting a fairly good job, even in fast food and places like that. You Mm -hmm. got bonuses to get a job at McDonald's back in the late 1990s. Um, And that's what's shifted is, you know, we once had a cushion with this concept of income inequalities where you could either use debt or you had such a good economy that you got to ride the wave at least for a little bit. Now there isn't that sense, and I think that's where it's coming from. But, you know, flyover is an easy way to say it, but it's here too. Diane Swank with us. There's an urban center. Diane Swank, DS Economics. Uh, I'm featuring tomorrow one of my ancient charts on manufacturing employment adjusted for population. And as you know, it's been a gradual decline since the 40s. And then it's just amazing the kinked nature of the curve, the abruptness of the last decade. What happened in the last decade to kink the trend to a dramatically lower manufacturing employment? Well, everything from foreign competition, which is what the election gets alludes to, but really it was automation. Um, we saw major automation. We actually produce a lot of stuff here. I get really irritated when people say, we don't produce anything here. I'm like, yes, we do. We just do it with robots, and we do what's called behind the glass. You talk to any manufacturer in the United States, and they hire people who work behind the glass now, not on the line. Um, that means they operate computers and need a different skill set than people who once worked on the line do, and that changes the nature of production quite a bit. We've seen major advances in productivity growth in the manufacturing sector over the years. I think back to the 1970s when I was growing up in the Detroit area, and GM was the largest employer in the United States. Today, Walmart is the largest employer in the United States. So, you know, that's a very simplistic way at looking at the changes we've seen, but it really is a very different world when it takes less people to make more things. And there's not really any future uh, for people I mean, we're not going to add more people, no matter what. We're not going to add another million people to manufacturing employment, which is kind of what some of the promises are out there, and it really is um, a false promise. And it's the idea that you can turn back the hands of of time is just a misnomer. And, you know, it's one that tends to happen regularly. We get these cycles. We had one in the 1920s and the 1930s as well, as we hit industrialization and people got very frustrated with it. And these are things that are the, the... the themes are the same, but every time we come out of it, we evolve a different way. And clearly, we need to change some of how we deal with our economy and those who have been left behind. We've not educated or invested in human capital. We decided to leave that on the sidelines, and people have been arguing that for decades. I mean, I don't, I don't think I, one presidential candidate up until recently that has run has not said something about education. And I think you know, investing in human capital is really important. But let's face it: in the United States, educational investments done at the state local level it's hard to fix well, at the and, federal level and and even if you started now it's only going to affect uh, younger people it's not exactly and that, not it takes and that's one of the reasons you don't get it um it's because by the time you reap the benefits of major changes in education the people who put it in place are no longer around to take the credit for it um although you know i'm always shocked is you know people say there is nothing that can be done and you know i happen to work with several groups that actually do work in in neighborhoods where you wouldn't expect people to be able to succeed and they're getting college degrees and they're getting educated and they're able to get their skills over a gap. It takes a lot of help, it takes a lot of work, but they can do it. And the fact that they can gives me hope that there is also a shorter-term fix to our problems, but we just don't want to look at them because they they affect people that a lot of people think don't vote or just don't deserve a lot of attention. We do have 
the jobs report uh, end of the week. Oh yeah, and you were uh, you're in the camp that uh, expects 175,000, a reasonable uh, reasonable number, and uh, people coming back into the labor force. So how does that affect the Fed? going forward. You know, that, yeah, um, not much. You know, you would think it should affect the Fed. I mean, if you go down the checklist of what the Fed originally said, you know, would be its criteria on data dependence, which I believe has become event dependent, um, you would argue that the Fed should be raising rates now. But I think the September meeting will be a hotly debated meeting, but I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think they're going to pull the trigger because of the uncertainty and the hedge the Fed has. They really don't want to go negative on rates. They really don't want to do un- more unconventional policies. And in response to not wanting to do that if the economy falters they'd rather provide a cushion of additional easing um, to be able to get us through this period in time of a global economy where central banks continue to ease and there's a lot of fragilities that said you know it is it is a bit of a catch-22 for the fed because you really do start wondering what are the unintended consequences i think we're already seeing them move back into emerging markets um, of people's reach for yield and this is you know the fed is in a bit of a conundrum in this situation, because if they raise rates, even though I think the domestic economy justifies it, the international context in which we operate may not. And the repercussions to that could be large enough that then the Fed has to do something different. And I think that's left them frozen and paralyzed Mm -hmm. to extent. Do you suggest that right now the Fed is ultra accommodative? They are. And we, you know, we look at inflation is, is picking up and it will come off a bit because oil prices have come off. But, you know, this is, um, you know, the things the Fed had argued would be the major things that would allow inflation to pick back up are now occurring. The dollar has um, not appreciated anymore. And that is helping us to see import prices level out, no longer bring down overall inflation. And in the service sector, where there is very little competition, we are seeing prices mm-hmm. edge up. Now, nothing flaming nothing flaring. But if you look at the underlying, you know, inflation picture and the underlying employment picture, right. not perfect. But <clears throat> let's face it, it's, it's met the Fed's criteria if they really want to be preemptive. Now, there are many on the Fed who would like to overshoot on inflation and unemployment. And that is, I think, the most mm-hmm. important thing to understand as well. Oh. I think Janet Yellen is in that camp. Diane, thank you so much. Diane Swan. You uh, noted this morning, um, well, it was your partner in crime on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance Television, Francie Lacroix, had a great chart of the move index, bond market volatility. Yes. And how it has just evaporated. And uh, Rocky Fishman is with Deutsche Bank, and he keeps track of all. I mean, he's the uh, director of equity derivatives. And that, 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 that was a bond market measure. But the same things happened in the equity markets. It was right after Brexit. Everything was kind of going crazy, and then it stopped. Did everybody just sell in May and go away, or or is there something broader going on here? Yeah, well, it's really been um, one of the most historic drops in volatility that we've ever seen. Um, all asset classes have seen implied volatility, realized volatility drop very quickly, um, which really means that markets have just stopped moving. But that has been more exacerbated in equities, and especially U.S. equities, than any other um, asset class. Um, you know, we've see, obviously seen the VIX drop into the 12s. It could actually be lower than that. Um, if you just look at the day-to-day moves, on the S&P 500, um, they have been exceptionally low 
the last 13 trading days, we've been staying in a trading range that's been less than two-thirds of a percent. That's pretty much the lowest trading range ever of a period of that length. And this is just weeks after we had a very, very volatile period around the Brexit vote. What's it mean? I think what it means is that um, we're in a new regime for volatility. The market is not going to just behave in a certain way for an extended period of time, but instead it'll change directions, not just change directions, but change its behavior, its day-to-day patterns um, very quickly. See that, Mike? Bullard speaks... And all the, you know, the, the multi-degree start talking of regimes. <laughs> uh, well, uh, what brought it on? I mean, what? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, that important catalyst is out of the way. Um, people are you know, clearly putting off any views about the Fed hiking for a little while. Um, but also, it just people get more comfortable with equities as volatility goes down. And it does create a bit of a feedback loop in the market where you see markets not being volatile. People get more comfortable investing. There are also structured products that systematically will allocate back into equities as equities get safer. I think that people are more and more focused on safety and avoiding periods of high risk. And when risk is going away, people get more comfortable investing and then markets just slow down. But this wasn't what was supposed to happen. Tom and I went over to uh, the United Kingdom for the Brexit vote, and when everybody voted to leave the EU, every analyst said, well, we're going to have a lot of volatility now because we don't know what's going to happen going forward. Well, the amazing thing with the equity markets has been that over the last couple of years, catalysts have typically been disappointing people who are looking for volatility. Usually when there's a big Fed meeting or other important-seeming catalysts, markets don't move as much as people are expecting going into the event. Brexit was the one big exception to that, but it lasted for a very short time. Um, This is an event that was so well anticipated. There was nothing that could have happened that would have really rocked people's worlds. People had planned out what-ifs for both the stay and the leave votes. Um, and once the leave actually happened, there, were, there was plenty of research, plenty of analysis that was ready to go to help people get comfortable with this new post-Brexit world. How out of, and I'm using this not skew as a cross moment, how out of skew is the VIX right now? Is it a valuable tool? I mean, I just looked at the, there's a fancy, fancy Bloomberg volatility surface of the VIX, which clearly shows that you would assume stocks go down higher VIX. I get that, but how skewed, How what's the belief of that bet right now? Well, the VIX is not a perfect measure of volatility, and it does Thank correlate you. a lot with where the market is going. So when markets are rallying, the VIX is typically going down, but that's connected with the fact that markets are rallying when investors are getting more comfortable with the world. So people are realizing that whatever risks are out there are not as um, significant as perhaps people thought. Is that what's happening right now? I mean, stocks go up and you're telling me people are comfortable? I think people are getting more comfortable, yeah, with the fact that the big risks that they saw a month ago, that the idea that Brexit is a systemic risk that's something that's starting to fade away. People are getting more comfortable with this world. I think at the same time, there's a lot of nervousness that this could change. And investors know that for the time being, stocks are not moving around a lot. It feels like a safe environment. People are reallocating more into equities. That can change really quickly. We've seen more and more over the last couple of years that volatility itself can change directions very quickly. When you get into sell-offs, they unfold faster and faster Mm -hmm. than ever before. Mike, I just want to bring up, there's a technical study in the Fishman world at Deutsche Bank called ADX DMI. 
and it shows uh, selling or a dearth of selling versus a lot of buying of yeah. S&P. Is okay. that what it's about, a dearth on an asymmetric basis? It's about a lack of sellers? I mean, the reality is that volumes are light in both directions, but net-net, when the market is going up, I think that it's just that there's more marginal buyers coming in. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's just there's not a lot of conviction, and as markets stay more calm, as right. volatility stays low, people get a little bit more comfortable every day with getting into equities, at least for the short term. Just had a very good email come in, and it's something that we take for granted along with Global Wall Street. But for those of you that are not Wall Street sophisticates, it's a great email. Can you talk to Rocky Fishman about Deutsche Bank? Mr. Fishman is with Deutsche Bank. He is in equities and derivatives. And the way it works on global Wall Street is with any institution, whether it's a mutual fund company or a big, a regional, a small bank, only the executives of the institution really can speak about the bank. And in terms of any major uh, bank, it's usually only one or two people, including Mr. Kryan. And so even though Deutsche Bank's in the news, it's impolite for me to waste the audience's time asking Rocky about Deutsche Bank because Rocky's going to go, Tom, I really can't talk about that or whatever he memorized from his legal counsel. So we're not going to talk to Rocky Fisherman about his bank or, for that matter, any other specific banks because he'd be putting a timeout. Was that a clear enough to He could discussion? talk about it. He'd just get fired. That's all. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> so anyways, we're going to migrate back to Rocky Fisherman on good questions about uh, this market. Rocky, there's Greek letters <clears throat> within the market, alpha and beta. Let's roar through it. Beta is a comparison to some index, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just that simple. It's something every institution uses. Has beta worked the last couple of years? Beta analysis? Well, I mean, in the sense that when stocks have been going up, a lot of stocks have been going up together with them. Um, you know, stocks have tended to be more correlated in the aggregate over the last several years than they were over the previous <clears throat> several years. Um, so that's definitely part of the story. And, and every individual stock has right. an exposure to the market. Yeah. And then another Greek letter, which a lot of people know, is alpha. People want to make alpha. Hedge funds want to make alpha. People flunk this on CFA exams. What's alpha? That's making the difference over the benchmark? Is that close enough? Yeah, alpha is really about getting an edge as yeah. an investor. And that's something that... And more jargony than mathy. Would we agree on that? Right, more jargony yeah. than mathy. Yeah. It's very difficult to measure. It's very difficult to observe alpha even if an investor is having better returns and potentially lower volatility, for right. example, than the market, it might not be alpha. It might be that we're just measuring returns and volatility in a way that's different. So it is something that's elusive to measure. It's something that really you need to watch for the long term rather than just okay. the short term. Two more Greek letters. Delta is the core one. What is Delta? Remind us why Delta is so important to global Wall Street. Well, Delta is really exposure to, to markets, really. To the bet. Yeah. And um, when markets are moving, there are some products that have more or less exposure to that market. Options will sometimes be very in the money. They'll have a very high delta. Options sometimes are very far from paying off and can have very low delta. Okay, that was a, uh, I'll give you a B plus on that. Now, where I wanted to go, alpha, excuse me, beta, alpha, delta, to the second derivative, the accelerative forces of the market, the speed, the sweat, the fear. And Rocky, you know that's gamma. 
I mean, people are out there dying to find whether it's convexity in bonds, which is another name for this, that accelerative force. Can you do that in the news flow of the markets right now? Are the markets so leaden that you almost give up with trying to make that big move? Yeah, it really depends on market conditions. Right now, I think that you can acquire that gamma, for example, by buying short-term options. And it looks very cheap on the screens. People can put on bets that would pay off really well if markets started to move. But that can get really expensive when we have a period like this, when markets are moving as little as they've <clears throat> moved in, in years, if not decades. Yeah. A so that there's, was a a cost. there's a cost to structuring yourself to have a lot of gamma in your investment. Mike, this is really, really important. And to take the mathiness down to the common English it looks so enticing to make a big bet, but if the market doesn't move, you eat the cost of your bet, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the, what you're paying for those bets has gone down a lot. You can buy the same option a lot cheaper now than you would have a month ago, but you can go through a continuation of the last few weeks when markets movement is so slow and that bet will just not work. And it's very difficult. One of the top challenges for people using options right now is deciding, how much they want to put on the table in terms of owning gamma, for example, to use the Greek term again. Yeah. How much do you want to be exposed to a view that things will start to move in your favor in the <clears throat> next few days or weeks? Mike, this is so important, and it goes back to reminiscences of a stock operator where two-thirds of the way through a book written in, what, 1930 or 1940, with no Greek letters, no gamma, no beta, no alpha, the guy says, you know what, it gets so slow, your best thing is to go to Florida. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. That's, that's the, that's the non-Greek definition. Well, I'm sitting here having no idea what any of you, know, you guys are talking about, but this is why you know, Tom is so much smarter than me with the, mm, doing, doing Greek. I'll do Greek food. You do Greek lettuce. I like that. Well, you've done that. You've been to Athens a number yeah, of times we'll, on that debacle. We'll, we'll do the, the, the Greek food and the, and, the, and the Greek letters. What on, on the horizon, not, not theoretically, but what do you see, if anything, is going to bring volatility back? You know, it's very easy to point to specific catalysts that are going to bring back volatility, but the exercise of doing that over the last couple of years has more often than not been, been wrong. Um, volatility usually comes about when you have multiple events happening, usually some of them or all of them unanticipated, and people lose confidence in the markets. It, it starts to play out when people start to sell because of maybe some unexpected event happens or maybe nothing happens. And certain investors start to sell, markets start to move, and volatility can come back in a hurry. Anything that you're worried about that's going to cause that? In the near future, or is it just such an unknown? I mean, look, the two things that people talk about the most because August is the month when whatever right. it is I happens. Mean, last year, we certainly had an amazing explosion of volatility last August. It's not clear what happened that caused that. You could point to the yuan devaluation, but that happened a week before the volatility really picked up. Um, and so it's not really at those moments when everybody is watching an event. Like, even though we had a big pickup in volatility around the Brexit event, that went away very quickly just because people were really well prepared for that event. It's really when something happens that investors are not prepared for, the volatility can really spiral out of control. So when I talk about mm -hmm. catalysts in the system, whether we talk about the Fed or we talk about the elections, these are things that people are talking about preparing for. And it seems unlikely that those become the major catalysts for driving the big pickup in index volatility. You know, and we do, oh. I do think that the S&P will become a lot more volatile before the year is out at some point. It may not last for the long term. Um, but it's very, very difficult to point yeah. to what catalyzes that.
This has been wonderful. Alpha, beta, gamma, and on we go. Rocky Fishman with Deutsche Bank as we look at the vol or lack of vol uh, in the market. Thanks for your money. We've got a ton of mail when Rocky Fishman is on. People are like, talk about like the dynamics, the dynamics of the market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.